I first would like to share with you a verse of scripture that uh, I consider it very pertinent to what I'll be doing this morning. And it's found in Jeremiah 9 and verse 24. And it simply says this, But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise love and kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as I share what you have done, may your name be glorified. And as a result, may you bless those that are here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was born in the island of Puerto Rico, and the arrow points to about just about where I was born. But the place doesn't exist anymore. The only uh, remnant of it is uh, just some people who may be my age, who lived there at the time. But uh, I remember one time I was in Laurelwood Church, and I was speaking to the head elder, and he asked me where I was from, and I said I was from Puerto Rico. He said, what part? And I said, El Fanguito. He said, no. He didn't come from El Fanguito. I said, yeah, do you, how do you know about that? He said, I was a sailor when I was young, and I was stationed in Puerto Rico, and we came across this place called El Fanguito. He said, I have never in my life seen so much poverty. We felt sorry for the kids. And so my, my friend and I decided that we would do something for those kids. So we went and bought a bunch of candy and came back and, and give, gave out the candy to the kids. And I said, thanks for the candy. And he started crying. He said, I cannot believe that you came from that place. I said, well, it's true. So I was born in El Fanguito. And then from there, my mother and father-in-law decided to transfer us to another island of New York. I guess you do know that Brooklyn is an island. Did you know that? The only one that's not an island is actually the Bronx. But all the other boroughs are actually islands. Manhattan is an island, Brooklyn and Queens are part of Long Island. So it's an island, and so we transferred to another island. Here it is. This picture is about the time when we landed in uh, New York City, about 1954. And we did not know what to expect. Uh, living in the conditions we were living in, and all of a sudden finding ourselves uh, with buildings that scrape the sky. At least that's what the lady used to tell my mother when she would boast about going to New York City. She would say, Doña Elsa, Mrs. Elsa, why the buildings scrape the skies and you can find, find money in the streets? Well, we found that the buildings scraped the sky, but about finding money in the street, uh, I did find a $10 bill one time floating down uh, the, uh, toward the gutter and I was able to catch it, and I was rich then, at least for a short time. But New York City brought 
things to our lives that we had not anticipated. Um, there was a man who walked up to me and clearing his throat like he had something terrible to get rid of, spat on a gutter, and he said, why don't you go back where you came from? And that created in me a, a, a strange sense of worthlessness. And I began to, uh, to wonder how we can get rid of the reproach. And since I was born a Puerto Rican, and Puerto Ricans were not looked upon in those days very highly, I wish that I could find a way that I could change that. Uh, and so I began to do different things in, in my little mind just to take away the reproach. And I remember doing different things. Uh, the first thing I tried to do was roller skate. And in those days, roller skating uh, had the, the binder up in the front. You remember that? It clipped on. How many of you remember any roller skates like that? You kids don't know what you have missing. But we had roller skates, and when you, you had to tighten up with a key, and it tightened against your shoe in the front, and then you tightened, then you put the belt around the back. Well, uh, learned to roller skate quite well, learned to jump up and down the steps and uh, jump off the sidewalk and on the street and go uh, eagle shape. In other words, you turn your legs like the shape of an eagle and you slide down the, the street. And then, of course, the fun of jumping over barrels, lining up garbage cans and seeing who could fly over the, the uh, greatest number of garbage cans. Well, I was quite proficient at it, and I thought once you reach the top, uh, you'll feel complete. But I discovered that that didn't make me feel complete. Then I thought trampoline. We moved from where we were to uh, another neighborhood called East New York. And not too far from East New York, there was a place called Carnarcy. And Carnarcy had uh, a place where they had trampolines on the ground. And you can go and pay, I don't remember what it was, a nickel or a dime, and uh, jump on the trampolines. And I decided that I was going to become a trampolinist. And one of the more difficult uh, stunts was to do a double somersault, which means you really had to jump up high in order to get enough height to do two and come down. And I was successful at it. I never tried it again because it was spooky, scary. But I did do it, and I thought that if I succeeded at that, I would feel complete. Well, that didn't work either. So then uh, my eyes began somehow to change, and I began to be impressed with young ladies. And there was a young lady in the school that it seemed like all the boys were after. And I thought, well, if I can get her, I will feel complete. So I did go after her and succeeded. And I remember walking in, in the schoolyard with her with my, in my arms and the boys green with envy. And I remember thinking to myself, eat your heart out, boys. Well, when summertime came, then it was my time to be angry, a part of me envy with, with, uh, with, with somebody else because when the summertime came, people went their different directions. She broke off with me and found someone else that made her feel complete. And that broke my completeness. I remember the worst part was when the song would begin to play on the radio, Sealed with a Kiss. Any of you remember that song? Yes, it's going to be a cool, lonely summer. And so it was for me. 
Well, I decided that I was going to forget that and uh, began, uh, uh, began to get interested in music. I don't remember what led me to it. I just remember that we began to try to form a, a group and start singing. Didn't know how to sing. At first, I was called the bitter tone, and then I became the baritone. And so we uh, developed the ability to do harmony. In those days, today they call it doo-wop. I don't know how many of you remember uh, groups singing like the platters, flamingos. They would sing harmony, etc. Well, we uh, began to sing, and uh, to our surprise, one day as we were singing in our uh, studio, our studio was the entry to the subway station uh, because in there there was a lot of echo. And when you sang, uh, you could sound like a frog outside, but when you sang in there, it sounded melodious and all this echo. Well, we were singing. I remember the song was called Valerie. And as we were singing, our, our lead singer would get on his knees, take out a handkerchief and act like he was crying, begging Valerie to come back. Anyway, while we were doing that, all of a sudden a man came by and, and he stood there with other people who were watching and listening. And uh, he simply said, you boys need a manager. We didn't know what a manager was. But he said, uh, I'll be glad to be your manager. Um, what do we do? I'll talk to your parents and get permission. So he did talk to my mother and we got a manager. Now to our surprise then, uh, this manager had some money. And the first thing he did was he bought us a uh, tailor-made suits and bought us a car. And that car, uh, we were able to use to travel. This is my uh, little family. My only uh, brother missing in this picture is the oldest one, but you're fortunate. You got him in the audience. And so uh, this is in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, you can see at least the five of us. And you can see my little brother uh, with his hand uh, acting like he was performing, because that's what the uh, people would do when they would perform. They would, they would go like this and, you know, etc. So he has his hand like he's performing. He always wanted to be a performer. Anyway, uh, our manager bought us this station wagon and put the name of our group on the side of it station wagon. Donnie and the Twilights. Can you see the name? I know it's a little hard to see, but it's Donnie and the Twilights. Uh, and so now we had our own vehicle to be transported. And of course, everybody in, in our block would ooh and ah. And uh, when they saw us without shark skin tailor made suits. Well, Unfortunately, along with trying to uh, find some way to be complete, other things came in, substance abuse. And unfortunately, our lead singer who had a golden voice was found overdosed in front of his house at 15. So now Donnie was gone and he had such a beautiful voice that we knew we could never replace. It was devastating to us because he was a friend. Uh, Count Basie was encouraging him to join him. But because we were very close like brothers, Donnie chose not to go with Count Basie. But he stayed with us and then finally he overdosed. 
Well, from that, then we formed another group called the Vampires. And uh, everything was vampirish about the vampires. Obviously, we performed that night, so that was kind of vampirish. Uh, we also all had capes and black suits, and uh, we sprayed our hair with white hairspray. I don't know if you can see that uh, on our sides, on the hair. And then we uh, had a funeral hearse as our vehicle. Uh, on the drum, there was a big bat painted, and our guitars, there were bats painted and all that. We began to uh, accelerate in popularity, and drugs began to get a hold of some of the boys, so we started with six, we ended up with four. And uh, there was no question that we were uh, moving ahead quite rapidly. And we began to think that if we're gonna reach this thing that I consider to be completeness, that we had to become recording artists. And in those days, it was very difficult to become recording artists. Today, everybody can just take a picture and put it on YouTube. But in those days, you actually had to have a contract, you had to have a manager, you had to have a company who was willing to record you, and that cost money, etc. We were fortunate that our manager was the borough president of Brooklyn. In, in New York City, every borough has a president, and our president was the borough president of Brooklyn. And that put us in contact with a lot of different opportunities. Uh, we were able to perform at the Waldorf Astoria, which was the still is one of the main hotels in New York that is very pricey most of the time. The president and other people who go there, uh, I'm not speaking about Trump, but the other presidents, uh, would stay at the Waldorf Astoria. And it was there that we came across other people who were famous, like Placido Domingo, etc. Well, I kind of felt this, uh, this exhilaration about our move, and uh, because we then became recording artists. Here I am doing a what is called a split, and you can see the bat on my bass guitar toward the bottom. Uh, and I got to the place where I could do most anything with the bass guitar. I could play with my teeth, put it behind my neck, and and play it, and uh, I could do a split and walk with the split with the thing behind my neck. Uh, anyway, jumped off the stage and, and fly down onto the floor and do a, do all sorts of of uh, monkey acts. Uh, show business is exactly what it means. Show business. You're there to show off. And so we uh, then became recording artists. And here's, uh, I found a business card that I thought I didn't have. And it turned out I discovered it not long ago. But here's some information, recording artists with Orbit Recording Corporation. Uh, Orbit happened to be housed in the building where uh, Ed Sullivan's show used to be aired. How many of you remember Ed Sullivan? Uh, well, right on top of it, uh, a few stories above, it's where we used to go and record. And it was not unusual to see Bible Streisand and other people around there. We continued to ex uh, really climb fast. We became the number one group uh, in the city. 
and our picture was put on the Broadway building. And uh, all of this contributed to the sense of being what? Reaching completeness. But it, it, it's amazing that no matter how high I went, it didn't seem like it was high enough. You always had to feel like it wasn't sufficient. Somehow I thought if I reached this, that I would feel complete. But every step higher that I went, you got there, and then it felt like a letdown. You didn't feel what you thought. Another thing happened is that every time we performed and then stayed at some uh, hotel, in the quietness of the night after the performance, there was always something that I sensed was missing. And uh, I, somehow I thought that what was missing was either more money, more popularity, more this, more that. But I never thought that what I needed was God. Because by that time, God was not part of the picture of my life. I basically just moved away from anything that was religious. And the reason for that was because of people who were religious, who I saw uh, were not doing what I thought in my little mind religious people would do or would not do or should not do. The Jews who would take me to the synagogue so they could get drunk at the synagogue. When the rabbi was busy, they would go into the kitchen and open the refrigerator, and there the rabbi had a, a gallon of Manashevich wine. So while the rabbi was occupied, they would start drinking, get drunk, and leave the synagogue. The altar boy next door to my house, Wally, on Skank Avenue, uh, though he was the altar boy, he had the filthiest mouth on the block. And so then, of course, the priest would come to our block, and you know what I'm talking about, adults. And so uh, all of that just, just uh, basically uh, pushed me away from anything that I considered to be religious. And so here I was in this particular situation, sensing that there was something missing, didn't think that it had to do anything with God or religion. I just thought higher, higher, higher. And so... We kept on climbing until uh, one night uh, we were invited to a drug party. And right in this building, up up in the top floor, uh, a gang of motorcyclists like the Hells Angels were celebrating uh, some kind of a drug party. We went up there, and uh, when everybody got affected by whatever was being offered, whether it be LSD, DNT, SDP, etc., after everybody was uh, intoxicated or high, somebody raised the question, who's God? And we began to talk about God. And I remember as we discussed God, I still remember today the conversation that we had. Don't remember a lot of things after the times that I lived back there. But this particular night, I'll never forget. And the discussion we had about God. And somebody shared the plan of salvation as Seventh-day Adventists understand it from the Bible. And I wondered later on if it was an angel or somebody who, in their drunken condition, had told what they knew from before. In other words, some backslidden person. I don't know. But what I do know is this that I, the conclusions we arrived at were wrong. But as I left 
about four in the morning, I remember driving, and this terrifying thought struck me. If there is a God, I'm in serious trouble. So the idea of God presented to me uh, terrifying thoughts. And therefore, I pushed the thoughts away because I knew what I was into, and I knew that if there was a God, that uh, I was condemned. So I pushed it away, and uh, but however, I somehow didn't like the environment I was in, and we were now playing, uh, performing in a nightclub, and the nightclub was getting uh, the walls being broken down to extend the dance floor and all that, and we by this time had three managers. We had a booking agent, we had an assistant manager, and we had Larry Desmond, which was our main manager. And we decided we didn't need managers anymore. We kept the booking agent because by that time we were paying 50% of our income. How much? 50% of our income. And people complained about tithe. When I became an Adventist, I, I thought, that's all he's asking, 10%? This is a deal. Do you understand? When you compare it with what? With 50%. So I already had an, under, a, an experience of paying off uh, percentages. Well, we got rid of the two managers, and uh, we kept the booking agent. Uh, Fisher was his name. And we kept him because he was the one that, uh, that booked us throughout the country. But I forgot one important thing, and that was that the manager owned our equipment. So we got rid of the manager, we got rid of our equipment as well. And now we had nothing to perform with. So we told the owner of the club that we could no longer perform. He said, no, you can't be, you have to perform. People are just breaking down the door to come and hear you guys. Well, we, we don't have any equipment. Well, I'll take care of that, come see me tomorrow. So the next day we went to see him and then he drove us to a, what is called a bookie joint, and I'm using terms that are normally used back in the East. And as we went down the steps, the lights were kind of dim. And as I looked on the wall, there were pictures of famous, famous performers. Frank Sinatra was the first one that caught my attention. And boxers, etc. And then I realized where I was. I was in the meeting place of the mafia. And immediately a man came to me and he says, I understand you have a little problem, boys. He had a big cigar sticking out of his mouth. And he said, we'll fix that for you. So uh, get in my car and we'll get you your equipment. So we got in his car and he said, just call me Godfather Nicky. So now we had our Godfather. And uh, he took us to, the, to New York City, the place called Sam Ash which was a, a large, well-known on 45th Street, Eugene, uh, near Broadway. So we went to Sam Ash, and there he said, buy whatever you want. We said, anything, anything, whatever you want, get it. So we got everything, echo chambers, we got microphones, and we got everything. Uh, my lead guitar player got a guitar with two necks, not one neck, one six-string and one 12-string. And uh, drum sets, everything we got. And he just took out a wad of money and just counted it out. Our mouths were hanging out. We couldn't believe that somebody had that much money in their pocket. 
So we went back, put it all in a nightclub, and he said, just one, one important item, boys. You need to sign a contract. So we were anxious to sign anything. So he gave us the contract, and it was a contract with the association, was the actual name uh, who we signed with, and that was another name for the mob. And so now we are part of the mafia. And I didn't like that because I remember my brother Hector and, and Gene, who knew more about all that stuff than I do, they used to talk and say, you never want to get in it because once you're in, you can't get out. And now I was in. Uh, didn't pay much attention to it until they began to unfold and share with us their secrets. And I didn't want to hear any secrets because I wanted to have a, an escape route. But I began to learn about this and learn about that, how they got rid of people, how people disappeared, how they hijacked trailers and what they did with the stuff and all that. And I, I just didn't want to hear anything, uh, but I did. Then it got to the place where I, I felt very uncomfortable. And so we went and performed to an, in another place upstate New York, uh, Newburgh. And when uh, we were about finished, it was close to Christmas time, and the boys wanted to go back to the home club. When we went to the home club, it didn't matter who was performing. If we got there, we were on stage. And so they wanted to go back, and I didn't want to go back. I wanted somehow to get out of that situation. Um, and so I, I became upset with him, and I said, I'm not going with you guys. If you go, I'm going to quit. Well, they said, good riddance. And I thought I was an important character in that, in that whole team because I was the one who used to organize the harmonies. I was the one that took care of the PA system and everything broke down, I fixed it. So I thought I was an important part uh, that could not be replaced. Well, they said good riddance. Well, I was shocked. They left and I didn't have a car with me at the time. So I went back to New York, got a car. When I got up there, I saw them speeding away with the funeral hearse. And then when I went into the club, I discovered that they actually went in there, took my amplifier, my equipment, to force me to have to perform with them back at the the, hall, the uh, club. So I did, I went, uh, knew where they were going, got to the club, and I told them, I said, okay guys, I'll give you two weeks. And by that time I was so upset that I said, I don't care if they break my bones, I'm not playing with you guys anymore. Two weeks, find yourself replacement. They said, great, well, good riddance. So it at, least, it at least inflated my ego a little bit. When they couldn't find one to replace me, they had to find two. So that told me, oh, you know, okay, guys, now you're going to have to split the money in, in five ways rather than four ways. Well, didn't know what to do. And so I went to a place called Cafe Wa, and that was a nightclub in, in the village, Granite Village. You remember Cafe Wa, Gene? Yeah. So I went there to see another of my friend who was performing. And when he took a break, somebody came up to him, talking to him, and my friend was pointing to me. So the gentleman came up to me and says, uh, I understand you're one of the best bass players in town. I said, I am. What about it? I used to be very meek and humble. And, and so uh, he said, would you like to play with, with, uh, with me? I said, who are you? He said, well... Uh, I'm the lead guitar player for Bill Hale and the Comets, and uh, we need a bass player. I said, come on, because I knew who Bill Hale and the Comets was. You remember they had made the first uh, 
record called Rock Around the Clock? How many of you remember that? Remember, you remember uh, Happy Days? You, those of you who saw that, the theme song of Happy Days. Anyway, so I knew how famous they were. They were world famous. And I thought, because in New York, there are all sorts of uh, uh, people, con authors, who are trying to tell you that you can get this, you can get that, just to get what they can out of you. And she, he said, no, I'm serious. I'm serious. I'm the, I'm the lead guitar player, and, and uh, we, we need a bass. And I came to New York specifically. They sent me to New York. And as I've checked around to different places, your name keeps on popping up. So are you interested? I said, if it's real, yes. If it's not, of course not. So what do, what do I have to do? Well, you need to audition. So the next day we got together. Can you play this? Can you play that? Can you play this? Can you play that? And, of course, I could play everything. And I played everything by ear. I taught myself how to learn music. It's interesting that of all my brothers, the only one that my mother bought an instrument for was me. And that was before I even got into music. She bought me an old Stella guitar. I don't know, Gene, if you remember the Stella guitar. I don't know if you were a culprit with, uh, with mom about that guitar. Now he's laughing. But anyway, I get this guitar, Stella guitar. And... Uh, but to play bass, I had to figure out how to, how to use it as a bass. And so all I did was loosen the string to sound like a record. Like a what? Record. How many of you remember the old record players that had uh, 78 and they had 45, 33, and 16? You remember that? Well, all I did was to figure out, I wanted to find out the intervals of the, of, of the, you know, the, the uh, tone, the notes. But they were too fast. So I thought if I could just slow this down, I could figure out the notes and then figure them out on the guitar and then duplicate it. Well, I slowed it down to 16 and it was like, so I then sped it up a little bit and then I could at least decipher the sound. And then uh, once I knew the where the notes were, then I put it up to the right speed and I could fly with it. And that's how I taught myself guitar or the bass. Well, um, after my audition, lo and behold, I became the member of Bill Hinton Commons. You can understand now that I'm feeling pretty complete, right? I'm reaching up higher and higher, and now, of all things, uh, I'm the bass player for Bill Hinton Commons. Here's a newspaper article that I was able to retrieve from the newspaper place because when I became a, was converted, I tore everything up. But here is a, uh, an article with Bill there, and you can see the names. And they used to call me Little Lou. So you can see, and Lou Torres, can you see that below? I don't know if you can see that. There it is. Okay. So now I'm the bass player of the commas, and I'm going to feel what? Complete. I have reached the top. And when you think about it, uh, how many young people who start out where I started out could end up being on the top? Do you understand what I'm saying? And perhaps you don't get the sense because you were not living in New York City where on every street corner there were groups of kids trying to learn how to sing, hoping that they would get to the top. So there were thousands. How many? Thousands who are hoping that somehow they could break in and get to the top. Uh, I remember speaking to one of the visitors here who said that he was a drummer and he was hoping that somehow they would 
be able to break in. But after performing for several years, he realized he was not going to get to the top. And so he decided to choose a different occupation than that. It's, it's a dog-eat-dog experience. But you know, all this time, while I'm taking substances, uh, thinking that somehow, some way, I'm going to finally hit it, get that complete fe feeling, um, I was disappointed. When I joined the commas, I thought there would be a, f a rush that would finally get me there, but nothing. I began to perform at the Comets. I thought that things would be better with them because they were so famous that, they, that I felt that the life that we were living with the vampires would be beneath people who were at that stature, only to discover that they were just as human as I was. And one of the boys, for example, had a $200 a day drug habit in 1967. You know what $200 a day is today, right? $200 per day in 67. He was so skinny that we always had to take his suit jacket, button it in the front, and then straight pin it in the back so at least it looked like it fit him. And so I, I, uh, I was disillusioned. The idea of playing and getting up to the top was different than what I supposed. And uh, the only thing that excited, excited me was that Rudy Pompelli, the one uh, who was a saxophone player, told me that I was too good for them and that when we reached Hollywood, that he, they would put me in touch with other opportunities to uh, ex go up higher. And then uh, Bill announced that we were going to do a world tour, and that excited me. Uh, and the part that excited me the most was that the Beatles had become popular by this time, and uh, they had written a derogatory article about our lack of musicianship, which made all of our uh, musicians upset. So the idea was to go to England and compete against the, the Beatles. And so I was looking forward to the opportunity to compete against Paul McCartney. And that excited me more than anything else. However, we took a break and I went home. When I got home, I found my brother Willie praying for me. And my mother was a devout, devout lady, but she was Catholic, and she was also mixed up in spiritism. I can remember her uh, sprinkling all sorts of stuff that she would buy that's supposed to keep the, the devils away from our house. And so when my brother was using my name, I heard him using my name, I thought he was trying to put a spell on me. So I went to my mother and I said, what in the world's going on with him? Oh, he's religious, leave him alone. And he came to talk to me. And he wanted to talk to me about Jesus. And it made me so upset that I said, keep it to yourself, buddy. I don't want to hear any of that stuff. He said, you don't understand. I said, well, I do understand if you keep on talking, I'm going to have to fight. And that was the way I used to settle things. But he left me alone. And then a couple of late, uh, days later, my older brother shows up. And I had heard the name Adventist, and I thought it was the name of some disease that they were affected by. 
that I had never heard of Adventists before. And so he told me that they were going to get baptized. I didn't know what that meant. But because he was the older brother and basically took responsibility for the family with my mother, for the rest of us, we were six boys. Um, and I, out of respect, I said, I'll go. When I went to the, to the church, in those days I had my hair long and I, you know, my clothing was, was different than what I wear today. I had, I had a hip hugger, bell bottom, a rainbow color pants on with, with boots on. My shirt was like a Tom Jones uh, shirt, open up down to the belly button to show how macho I was. I had 10 rings on my fingers. And so when I went to church, I realized I looked like a Christmas tree. Well, I sat in the back because I noticed people gawking at me and I just slipped down into the pew to get out of sight. And then the program began. And as I said, I had never been uh, uh, to my recollection in that kind of a setting. And my sister-in-law goes first. They put her in the water. She comes up crying. And I thought, silly women, they always cry about nothing. And then... My brother-in-law took his place, and he went in the water, and he came up crying. And that troubled me, because I had never seen my brother cry, uh, ever. Uh, I knew one time some of the boys, some of the other uh, gang members caught him, two held his arms, and the other guy punched at his face. And somehow he got free, and one blow, he knocked out the fellow down, and the other two fellows took off. But I didn't see him cry. And now he's going into the water and comes up by the water. He's crying. And that just troubled me. And then I, I, the thought came to me that I had two years before. Could they have found God? Because they were different. They were not living the same way they used to live. I couldn't fathom how they, these guys could be happy. How can you be happy sitting down and reading that black book? just didn't make any sense but they seemed to be happy nonetheless and that created in me a, a terrible conflict mental conflict because that thought if there's a god i'm in serious trouble two years ago kind of became a, a flashback at that moment could they have found god and if they did, they did find god now i'm in serious trouble the reality that god was real was something that I did not want, but there it was. So I left the church, and I began to have this, this terrible conflict in my, in my mind. Somehow, I couldn't help but admire the fact that they no longer were hooked to this and hooked to that. No longer did they have to go here and go there in order to be happy. They seemed to find happiness where they were. And in order for me to be happy, I had to be jumping up and down and taking drugs and, and doing all that stuff. So... It just didn't make any sense. But it was appealing. It was what? It was appealing. But how do you become that way? So then I began to realize that this thing was getting too close to me. And if I continue to allow it to, to kind of take control of me, I'm going to lose out on what all that I've worked for all my life. You know, the show business, the going to uh, London and... We're going to do a trip all over the, the Europe. In fact, a few years ago, I was in, in Hungary, and uh, 
they discovered, the musicians discovered that I was in town. And so they invited all the musicians in town to come for a, to, to hear me play, etc. And there were over 350 musicians that showed up because Bill Haley and the Commas had been very famous in Hungary. So they showed a video clip of that performance that I was supposed to do in Germany. And there were over 100,000 in the audience. How much? 100,000 in the audience. But what struck me was this. Bill Haley got up and said, I am 40-something, I don't remember the exact day, uh, age, but I can still rock around the clock. And most people did not know that Bill was having struggles. Was having what? Struggles. It was the kind of struggles that I was acquainted with, with people who were famous and they lost the, the, uh, the attention or the status that they had. Bill was considered to be the king of rock and roll until Elvis Presley came along and knocked him off his throne. And Bill then became the father of rock and roll, a, a title that he detested. He hated to be considered to be old. And he was struggling with that. So when he said, I'm 44 and I can still rock around the clock, uh, he was trying to show that he was still young enough to, to still do this. Well, I did not know what to do. And I wanted to get out of New York City ASAP because I thought that something was trying to grab a hold of me. But then they called me up and told me it was postponed. And now I knew I had to, as we say in, in show business, face the music. So... I decided that I was going to show this God, if he is real, that I need this lifestyle. I, I need to be where I am. So I found that there was a, a, a dance in a certain uh, hotel. Let me see if I have the picture here. Uh, no, I don't. In a certain hotel called, uh, it was down in Brooklyn, New York. And right now the name doesn't come to me, but the, the St. George Hotel, that's correct the St. George Hotel, and so there were uh, nine bands that was going to play from nine at night to four in the morning. And I went there to escape. To do what? To escape from whatever was trying to get a hold of me. So I began dancing, and I danced and danced and danced, and danced and danced until midnight. By this time, I was a professional dancer, so dancing just was part of my uh, being. And finally, I got tired of dancing, went up to the balcony, and as I was looking down from the balcony, in those days they were doing the, the, the monkey, the chicken, the waddle, the dog. I see some of you smiling. Do you remember those? Okay. And the monkey was acting like a monkey, the chicken was acting like a chicken, the dog, etc. And as I'm looking down on the dance floor, I'm trying to find some girl whose talents were commensurate to mine. Uh, so I'm scanning, scanning the floor. And before I would say, wow, look at her. She can really do it. Look at her, etc." But this time something happened. As I'm looking down, I'm amazed that all these well-dressed people are down there acting like animals, thinking that that brought happiness. And I had never seen it that way before. Thinking that being a monkey or being a chicken was bringing happiness. And I, 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 I have to be honest with you, I, I was just 
taken back by that. And I thought, what am I doing? It's like the light came on. This is not happiness. And then I looked up to the ceiling and I said, God, if you're there, do for me what you've done for my brothers. And that was it. I left that place. And as I went home, the, a sense of lostness came over me. I had never experienced feeling lost. But a sense of lostness came over me. And when that sense of lostness came over me, it overwhelmed me. And I did not know how to pray because we were, as Catholics, taught how to recite Hail Mary, full of grace, or our Father, which art in heaven. So I had no idea how to pray. So what I did was I began to talk, because I was by myself there, and began to ask God to help me. And then to take it away, because I knew that I could not of myself give it up. All that I had worked on to become complete. Now I'm up on top. Now I'm making the money. I'm driving around the limousine. I have uh, all sorts of flashy clothing. In other words, everything that I thought was uh, contributing to happiness in life. But I began to say, take it from me. Take it from me. And the more that I prayed, the worse it felt. The more lost I felt. And finally, I sank down to my knees. And I remember as I sank down to my knees, begging God to forgive me, to help me, to change me, to take it all away. I remember feeling something wet and warm coming down my cheeks, and I, I was surprised. I looked up to the ceiling to see if there's something dripping from the ceiling. Because in New York, there are a lot of things that drip from the ceiling. So I look up, and there's nothing up there. And then when I touched my face again, I realized, I'm crying. These are tears. I had become so callous, so hardened by everything that I was surrounded by, that I don't remember crying for years. And as I knelt there and realized that I was crying, I felt as if though something strange was happening. The addictions disappeared. Instantly, I felt a peace that came over me. And I stood up realizing that that God whom I was afraid of was not somebody to be afraid of, but somebody to turn to. Because he then in a moment's time, took away all that that I was dependent upon. From that moment on, amen and praise be to God, I lost all desires for show business, for drink, for smoking, for alcohol, whatever it was. I knew then that God was real. And it was the first time that I sense feeling complete. When I stood up, 
I went to the mirror, saw myself with my long hair and all that. I thought, what have I done to myself? With my showbiz clothes on, I immediately took them off. Those 10 rings that I had, I took them off and threw them in the garbage can. I don't know how much I got rid of in terms of value, but to me, I needed to make a clean break with God. I now understood what Colossians 2 verse 10 means. Ye are complete in him. In who? In them. I decided then to commit my life to God. And what I found was this. I did not know that there was a website called rockabillyhall.com. But I was in Austria going to speak, and the youth director asked me about my past experience. And I, when I told him I used to play with Billy in the comments, I did not realize that he didn't believe me. So what happened was, the next day he came and said, you're telling the truth. I said, what do you mean I'm telling the truth? He said, you said you played with Billy in the comments. Well, people make all sorts of statements. So I wanted to check you out. And he said, this is what I, f I found it on the website. I said, where on the website? And so then he gave me the website, and I went. And this is what it says. Lou Torres, Puerto Rican-born musician who replaced Al Rapa on the bass guitar for a tour in late 67, 68, early 68. Prior to working with Haley, Torres was a member of a group called the Vampires. Around his time with the Commas, Torres found religion. And on that website, it has the list of everybody who did perform with Bill Haley and everybody who says they did and didn't. Fortunately, I was in the group that did. The amazing thing is this. I didn't find religion. I found the Lord. And there's a difference. What do you say? There's a great difference. Ye are complete in him. Listen. After that, I was drafted and was put in the military choir in the army in Korea. And then I was able to marry my beautiful bride. Uh, and I know I look like a little kid here, but uh, this is 1974. So my wife and I were doing uh, music in New York City. And the words of Jesus, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain what? The whole world and lose his own soul. Young people, listen. When you're growing up, there's always the, the, the television and the movies presenting to you people who apparently are happy and are on the top of the world. Uh, and by it, trying to encourage you to try to follow suit and follow those examples. The reality is that it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how many houses you have. It doesn't matter how many cars you have. It doesn't matter how famous you become. If you look at the history, you'll see that most of the people who are famous uh, have not died, especially from my particular area of music, have not died very happy. You know, Michael Jackson was popular and famous and all that. He died of what? Drugs. Most of the people that I've known, Bill Haley, you know how Bill Haley died? Because he was so famous, he could not go into the public 
because people would harass him with signing. You know, this. So he used to wear a hat, dark glasses, a trench coat, and he would pick up his collar like this. And he usually would only go out uh, early in the morning to get go into his boat and go fishing. Or at night, the only place he would go to was to the police station so he could talk to somebody. So at night, he would walk to the police station to talk to somebody. And one night, he was going to the police station. He had a heart attack and died. I remember uh, Buckwheat. How many of you remember Buckwheat from our Little Rascals? Okay. Buckwheat used to come to my nightclub on, on a place called Cult 45, which was down in, again, Broadway, as I performed there. And when he would come in, he came in dressing like somebody from the Roaring Twenties, a broad brim hat, uh, little handkerchief, double-breasted uh, suit, patent leather, black and white shoes, and he would come diddy-bopping. And so then he would uh, sit down and he would talk with me. And what I've noticed about him was that he never talked about any future. He loved the fact that he had lost popularity, that no longer people were looking toward him. Uh, all he could talk about was hoping that somehow he could get back to the days that he had uh, notoriety, etc. And then when it was time for me to perform, uh, I'd go up and watch him. And he would take that little handkerchief and twirl it. And then by himself, he would go around circles, dancing with that handkerchief. And he just loathed for the night to end. He did not want to go home. They actually had to tell him to leave. Buckwheat need to leave. And I used to think to myself, I never hope I end up like him. I actually felt sorry for somebody who was so famous and yet was devoid of any hope. Do you understand what I'm saying? My friends, listen, the only place of completeness can be found is in the Lord. You will never find completeness in any of those things. And those of us who are adult, you know that when you're, when you're young, you aspire to get to the place you can buy your own house and you can do this and you can do that. And once you do it, then what? then you have headaches of having to maintain your house and having to pay to keep it up and keep people from stealing from you and all those things. Isn't that true? That's the reality. Complete is never found in money. Completeness is never found in substances. Complete is found in God. The Lord has reserved a space in his heart, in your heart, only for him. He is the only one that can fill that spot. You can try to fill it with other things, but you'll never, never find completeness only in Christ. And so this morning, perhaps some of you have identified with what I'm talking about. Perhaps somebody here has been striving to do this and do that. But after trying to do it like old King Solomon, he could only state all is what? Vanity. He had all that he wanted. He got all that he wanted, but in the final analysis, he simply says, all is vanity. The only source of completeness is in the Lord. So this morning, is there anyone who can identify with trying to find completeness in things and other things?
and this hour just now is come to you that what you need in your life is the Lord and you'd like to raise your hand and say Lord help me to find completeness in you is there anyone who would like to lift that hand and say yes help me to find completeness in who in you because all the other things ultimately end up to be vanity let's pray Heavenly Father, we marvel at your mercy and your patience with us. And we know that the world is alluring. We know that sin entices with the hopes that somehow we can find completeness in these things. But we're not the first. Mother Eve thought she can find completeness in taking something that would cause her to get higher but she discovered sorrowfully that her choice in finding completeness in other things only brought death and sorrow and pain and crying and oh father we're living too close to the end of time Help each one of us, help these young people who are here to realize today that completeness can only be found in you. And lead them. And those hands that have been raised, bless them and granted that the completeness that you offer will be found because you have promised, you shall seek me and find me when you shall have searched for me with all your heart. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.